Today, we're talking about the scourge of farmers. Every time it rains, we get another crop of weeds. It can grow very, very fast. It, it's just a constant battle. It makes cropping pointless. Uh, it will devastate yields to the point where you have to do something else. Yes, weeds. Or are they simply plants that pop up in the wrong place, perhaps? Because whilst farmers are particularly irritated at the appearance of a weed growing rogue in their crops, there are some people who are here to defend them. Maybe not when they're choking out highly valuable commodities, but when they're found growing in the wild, well, that's a different story. It's like a sort of tangy mango. Absolutely lovely. So go up mm, this weekend. Get a really, really soft rose hip and just squeeze it through your fingers. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Little treat. Meet Tom Radford. He's a forager and an expert in wild food. He travels the UK in his van and hosts foraging events that explore all things edible that are growing in the wild. To see for yourself, check him out on Instagram. He's at Eat the Country. If you follow him, you'll find content like this. It's just brilliant. Good morning, sausages. What have we here? Death or dinner? Well, this is the greater plantain. I know you're thinking, plantain, bananas, so exciting. No, different plant, different species, different family. It's only called the greater plantain because it's slightly bigger than the lesser plantain. Um, is it edible? Well, you can eat the seeds. You can eat the leaves. They're a bit bitter, though, but it is edible. But it's got lots of cool stuff going on. My favourite nickname for this stuff is Beatles guitar strings. Now, the reason for that is because if you look inside the, the leaves, you can pull open, you can find these sort of chords, little strings, which you can't actually put on a guitar. This is a very small guitar. Um, if you were in a, in a survival situation, they can be used as sort of string. Tie up a wound like a suture. You can make cord with them. You can use them as dental floss. Yeah. Um, the other great thing about this plant is it contains antihistamines. And, and if you get stung by a bee or by a nettle or something, this is much better than dock. I mean, dock will soothe it. This is a proper medicine. You chew a bit and you rub it on the wound. Fantastic, okay? What a great little plant. In today's Science Behind Your Salad from BASF, we're exploring the undergrowth and the world of weeds. Most gardeners hate them. Ecologists love them. Farmers are constantly battling them, but love them or loathe them, they are part of nature and they're here to stay. In this episode, we'll hear just how damaging to farmers these pests can be and the impact that they can have if left to dominate a crop. And we'll hear new ways to tackle them and protect against them if they appear in the wrong place. But first, I wanted to hear from Tom the Forager. Despite it being the depths of winter in the UK and much of the Northern Hemisphere, Tom explained that there's nature's bounty still very much in our countryside. I'm always fascinated by foraging, particularly this time of year, because this is when people had to do it to survive. And so there are actually a lot of plants out there which can supplement your diet. I mean, one of the best ones out there is nettles. Um, nettles grow three to four seasons a year, depending on the year. Um, so there's still some young growth coming through. They are full of iron, they are full of minerals, and, and they're, they're a good little um, substitute for things like spinach. Something like land cress is another one. You can have it in the raw in a salad. Jack by the Hedge is still out, which is, which is uh, garlic mustard, um, which has got a little bit of flavour to it, which is because a lot of things in nature don't. Ground ivy. There's a lot of things about, in terms of greens, there are a lot of rose hips. Now, rose hips are particularly good because they, they contain almost more vitamin C than anything. Um, so they're very good for syrups and jellies um, and a good thing to have on hand for winter colds, which is something that we're all bound to be facing. 
this podcast episode that we're recording is about weeds. And uh, I just wondered what that word meant to you, given that that plants are useful, weeds are useful, they're edible, they can protect your health, they can supplement your diet. What does the word weed mean to you? To me, I mean, obviously I'm not a gardener. I never really, never really was a gardener. I mean, as a child, weeds were something that I was basically forced to dig up for pocket money. I mean, there are some plants which are fantastic plants in my view, which are an absolute nightmare. I mean, I, only, I made a film about gorse this week and I had someone in Scotland who's got a farm up there and they were going on and on, oh, this stuff's an absolute nightmare. I suppose a weed is classified as a weed because it obviously it's not something that people traditionally use for food or for, or for cash crops. Weeds are very, very tenacious things and they tend to overtake um, things and make life difficult for farmers and they're hard to get rid of um, I mean for example let's take horsetails I mean I did a film about horsetails this week because I find them very fascinating and people were going well you just can't get rid of them you know plantains again one of my favorite plants but they are everywhere I think farmers used to work more with them um, and I feel now this idea of getting rid of all of the weeds are maybe starting to go away and I know people up the road here who've got a regenerative farming approach and they tend to encourage them in, in certain ways and um, I also love the fact if you walk past or through hedgerows, you'll find a huge variety of plants. Some of the best variety of plants, edible plants, you'll find anywhere. And I think that's because in the past, these things were used um, by farmers and, and they understood the value of them. And, and Tom, in terms of the heritage, the stories and I suppose the past uses of these plants, what has entering this world um, sort of, I suppose, rekindled in, in that history and narrative, do you think? Every plant I look into has got an interesting story behind it. And, you know, you've only got to look at some of the names of the plants. I mean, one of my favourite is one called sow thistle, which is a common plant. Um, you'll find all you come in for free pavements and stuff. And I, and I was curious as to why it was called sow thistle. Um, and apparently someone, Bright Spark, decided that the white juice in this plant was good for encouraging lactation in pigs. I don't know how they found that out or what the circumstances were, but it, it just makes me laugh. And so then I convey this information to my audience. Um, and that makes them laugh too. And so hopefully that, you know, a spoonful of sugar um, helps the medicine go down, you see. And I, I love all the stories about fairies, you know, apparently, you know, rose hips, put them under your pillow in it to, or drink the tea and it, you know, soothes unrequited love. And these kind of things, I just find it brings it to life. Um, you know, um, clovers apparently help you see fairies. I mean, and nettles, apparently, this is quite fun, actually. There used to be something called flying venom which is when you felt ill for no reason at all, they thought there was venom flying through the sky called elves firing arrows. And apparently nettles could protect you from flying venom. Um, so I think that they, they, they were just trying to look for solutions and they were associating it with their gods and, and things like that. And, and I think that for me, if you're trying to get someone interested in a subject, this kind of information makes it, brings it to life so much more. And I, I to me, it's my favorite part of it. Um, I mean, obviously I love the edibility, I love the medicinal, properties but I also just find the stories you know I'd rather just walk around and talk about that frankly. <laughs> mm, I wondered if you were going to say that I was going to ask you what are your favourites and why but I was also going to ask you know is is the story part of that but what are your favourite plants what, when they come into season what do you think wow I'm, I'm really pleased that's around now. Well it's not always ones that you'd expect I mean um, obviously I think that arguably the greatest thing anyone can forage is a blackberry just a great you know and there's 400 different varieties of blackberry in this country um, and that's why they sometimes they taste different but i think they're wonderful but i love sweet woodruff looks very similar to goosegrass but if you if you dry it it, it smells and tastes like vanilla 
very strongly. Um, pineapple weed is another favorite, which is a type of wild chamomile and it smells and tastes like pineapple. Alexander seeds, very, very strong um, celery taste, marvelous and Bloody Mary. Dandelions, remarkable that dandelion roots can be made into a coffee substitute. I love um, mugwort. I think mugwort might be my favorite plant. Um, it's associated with a substance called thujone, which is reputed to give you um, lucid dreams. <laughs> which I haven't, I mean, I have pretty strange dreams anyway in a van, I can tell you, but um, but I always find it very soothing at bedtime. So a cup of mud, mugwort tea um, with um, with some honey is lovely. Um, and of course it, its brother plant is, is wormwood, which is the one that's associated with absinthe, which only has, I mean, it is just as harmless as, as mugwort, but, but lovely flavors. So those are the ones I find really interesting. Rose hips right now, um, if you pull a rose hip off now, which is soft and um, people get all, funny about the hairs and squeeze it it's like eating mango jam it's absolutely delicious so again um lots of hidden things and i could go on all day but those are some of my favorites how closely are some of those wild species related to the kind of things that we might buy in the supermarket so for example rocket um as one example which i know is quite related to wild origins one of my favorites is sea beet um, which is obviously grows by the sea, um, and it is the original grandfather of beetroot. Now, I hate beetroot with a deep passion, but sea beet is better than spinach. It tastes better than spinach. Um, another one is um, miner's lettuce, which also tastes better than spinach um, and cooks up better than spinach. Um, obviously, we have things like wild barley, but there's not really enough um, grain on one of those to be of much use to you. Um, Queen Anne's lace, which is a beautiful plant. It looks, looks a bit like yarrow. It's got a flat top. It's actually a wild carrot. Pull the root out, it's got a wild carrot on the end of it. And I'm not sure whether burdock has a modern derivative in uh, agriculture, but that also has a fantastic root on it, like a huge parsnip sized thing. Trouble is you'd need a flipping JCB to get it out, but um, <laughs> but, but it is a good source of, of carbohydrates and stuff as well. I mean, dandelion leaves are a wonderful one. They're very good for, for a salad, um, or you can just cook them up and they're plentiful all the year round. And are there any species that you find out in the hedgerows that you think, oh, that would be great to be able to cultivate that and sell it via a supermarket? Uh, I think mugwort's certainly one of them. That would be wonderful. I've never understood why wild, wild garlic is not, um, is not um, mass produced. I mean, I suppose bulb garlic has got a, a better, it's, it's different flavor, but I think wild garlic has a wonderful um, flavor and it would be a great thing. Just, I mean, it's not a difficult thing to grow. There's, a, there's an interesting plant called wood avens, which is absolutely everywhere. Once you realize what it is, you're, oh my God, this stuff's everywhere. And the roots um, taste like clove. In the same way as a clove, they could be used for a toothache, you see, simple sorts of things. But, you know, if you're out and about, I always think, you know, if you were thinking like someone two, 300 years ago, you say, well, that's the, that's the larder, that's the workshop, and that's the apothecary, you know? And so you have to sort of think, you know, and there, and there are those things all laid out for you. And often I say, you'll find these things by farms because I think that they sometimes planted them, so they had them to hand. Whilst Tom enjoys the flavours and delights of some of the wild plants growing in nature's larder, our next wild species could be described as the nasty stuff found hanging around in the back of the medicine cabinet. The slender meadow foxtail, twitch grass, black twitch, or as it is commonly known in the UK, black grass. Black grass is a weed that is one of the biggest challenges to profitable arable farming in the main wheat growing areas of the UK. It produces a large amount of seed, which is shed before the crop is cut. It has developed resistance to a wide range of herbicides and grows in high densities, competing with crops and reducing wheat and barley yields if it isn't controlled. Guy Smith is an arable farmer in a black grass hotspot in the southeast of England. 
His battles with blackgrass have been ongoing for decades. The most pernicious weed uh, on my farm, uh, a weed that is increasingly difficult to control. And, you know, in a sentence, uh, it feels like a sentence. You are continually laboring against it and it is increasingly dictating what I can and can't grow on the farm. It is quite peculiar to to heavy land in, in Eastern England. Um, I, there is a bit of it in France. It has proven increasingly clever at becoming uh, resistant to chemical control. And so you will spray a certain active ingredient on it uh, one year and within five years it has managed to internally breed its own resistance uh, and, and that is a problem. This other problem is it, it, it germinates 12 months of the year more or less. Uh, but um, the the problem for a farmer in our part of the world is that we, we autumn sow our farm uh, and it likes emerging in the autumn. One black grass head will have thousands of seeds if you allow it to shed. The other key thing agronomically about black grass is it sheds its seeds just before you harvest your crop. Um, so it, its timing in terms of its self-preservation is brilliant. Um, and so one black grass plant will then shed a thousand seeds um, and you can just, you need to do the maths, it exponentially it will take over and it will swamp your crop and leave you with more or less nothing, nothing economical anyway. We are trying to um, use different chemicals in sequence, uh, but this is increasingly expensive. Uh, and um, I think it is a bit of a failing strategy. There are other things like you can do, like you can delay your drilling. So you ask the, um, the black grass to germinate uh, before you sow your crop. Uh, and then you put chemicals such as glyphosate on to give you a stale seedbed, uh, or you can spring crop. Um, and uh, wait for the spring so you allow your black grass to germinate through the winter um, to give you a clean start. But those strategies are also vulnerable to failure because um, late drilling can be caught up by the weather, uh, which is a problem we've had this year in the UK with a very wet autumn. And spring cropping is also very vulnerable to spring droughts. So in many ways, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, I think the pattern is that uh, a new herbicide will come along and it will appear to be effective in the first couple of years and then it loses its, uh, its effectiveness. Chemically, we are not um, being able to control this weed. Now, it may be, you know, with along the combination of, of changing drilling patterns, of spring cropping, of using more break crops or using grass breaks, and the chemical armory, you will get the control you need, but you need to bring in these other factors uh, to allow the herbicides to, to really be effective. It, it is a challenge to farmers, I think, to, to find alternative strategies, and it may be going back to, to simple fallowing uh, or, or grass breaks or bringing back livestock onto your farm. You know, I, I think that's probably the future. We are continuing to grow wheat uh, with some success, uh, but I'm just conscious that if you don't have a long-term strategy, it's pretty short-term what you're achieving. We live in a high rainfall area here in uh, 
when the cold fronts come from the northwest, they generally kind of meet up here and we get a lot of rainfall. So, uh, and our temperatures are warm here. Every time it rains, we get another crop of weeds and uh, it germinates another crop of seed. So it's, uh, it's, it's a constant battle in these weeds can grow very, very fast. And uh, so it, it's just a constant battle. It's much better now than when I started farming 50 years ago, but uh, it's still a battle. Meanwhile, across the pond, farmers experience similar challenges in their crops. Sledge Taylor is a cotton farmer in the north of Mississippi. As well as cotton, Sledge grows corn and soy over his four and a half thousand acres of land. It's anything and everything, but there's a weed called pigweed that seems to be our, our nemesis. Uh, one. One pigweed can make uh, 100,000 seed, and so they're, they're pretty prolific. But, you know, this is something I don't think people really realize how, how much of a problem weeds are. Uh, they, they would compete for sunlight, they compete for water, they compete for fertilizer. And some of these weeds get as big as a man's forearm, and so that then gives problems in harvesting these these real tough woody stemmed weeds uh I, I mean if you had a severe infestation of weeds and did not control them uh you'd be looking at 50 percent to 100 percent loss in yield but fortunately we're, we're able to control them and so we don't get much loss from weeds we farm almost exclusively uh no-till, which means we, we don't plow. Now, occasionally we do. We grow a lot of what we call cover crops, which uh, once we, about the time we harvest our crops in the fall, we'll seed uh, crops that grow during the winter. Sledge prides himself in good soil health, as it seems every little helps in combating weeds. We grow these during the winter, and, uh, and because we have living roots on the soil and we have soil cover, year-round that really does add more to biodiversity in the soil and uh, there are a lot of uh, good insects a lot of good fungi and bacteria I, I think by what we do we do add to the biodiversity of the soil we also have grazing lands and we also have forest that adds to the biodiversity of the overall farm our crops now are resistant to most of the herbicides we use and so uh, and the weeds are not so that has greatly helped us. I mean, before we before we had the uh, the herbicides that we have now, we we could not. Well, I did no-till in those days, but I did it on a small scale, and it was very very difficult to control the weeds, and we always had some escapes. Now, we we generally control them not a hundred percent, but very close. And the new technology has been a benefit to us because we can stop tilling the soil and still continue to uh, control weeds. You know, we, we do not do any hand weeding anymore. It's just, it's, it's backbreaking work. It's, uh, you can't find anybody to do it and then it's horribly expensive. Technology has really been good for farming. It, it has allowed us to do so much more with, with less. I expect technology to continue to improve and uh, we, we'll have better products and, and you know, there may actually be with all of the technical aspects of uh, electronics now, there's some things out there now that, that use uh, electric eyes to detect weeds and uh, cut down on the amount of herbicides we might use. And actually some laser, you know, there's some laser things being talked about to, to destroy weeds. But in, in general, I think it'll just continue to improve. Precision farming and delivering the exact optimum amount of herbicide is, as Guy struggling with blackgrass and sledge constantly fighting pigweed both say, vital 
to ensure we have enough food to feed the growing number of mouths on the planet. And so how do scientists keep ahead of the pests and threats? Padma Kamuri is Director of Research and Development for BASF's Agricultural Solutions in North America. I began by asking her the classic chicken and egg question. What comes first, the solution or the problem? The problem comes first. BASF has been supporting farmers and uh, farming for more than 100 years. You know, the innovation in the last uh, 100 years is different than what we've been seeing recently in the last two decades. Agriculture has been challenging in many regards, but we don't see the challenges as challenges. We also see them as opportunities for innovation, innovating uh, sustainable solutions all the way in the crop management systems. We're actually just starting to embark on this journey to provide like holistic crop system solutions. Now we're putting products together in delivering that holistic offer in terms of uh, a connected solution uh, for the grower, a solution that is environmentally sustainable and also like regulatory compliant. And um, it will deliver long-term value in grower crop management system. How do you make sure that when you're working 10 years in advance that you know what the target pest or weed is going to be? Predicting the exact uh, future of agriculture is a complex task because we are operating in a dynamic, you know, um, environment, both uh, climate ways um, and also like how much the technology is changing. And also the challenges that the growers are facing are increasing. If you look globally, one of the you know, trends that is very clear is agriculture is going to focus more on technology. Precision farming, for example, um, drones, robotics, and with growing concerns about climate change and environmental um, impact, the future of agriculture will have to focus on sustainable practices. One of the problems that farmers come up against is the main challenge that keeps Padma and her team constantly working. Crops become resistant over time to the treatments used to control them. That's why we're focusing on the crop system model, you know, manage, helping the growers to overcome their resistance in crop rotations, including, you know, the cultural practices and uh, cropping and planting cow crops, for example. So those are all the things that are, we are also embedding into our comprehensive offering to the grower going forward. And Padma, you talked a lot about other technologies. So I know that's something you spend a lot of time and care and effort in achieving with your growers that you work with, which is ensuring that they're also using practices like rotation and the cultivation technique to make sure that those herbicides work most effectively. Just talk me through how and why that's important to you as a business and, and, and what impact that has on the ground for farmers. Whatever we have to deliver to the grower has to be performing for a long time. We invest a lot of time in making sure that we are offering that product, right? So for that, you know, like um, we need to understand what is the biology of both the crop and also um, the weed species that, that we are talking about. So extensive research goes into that. And um, that really helps in uh, the mode of action is, uh, is, is, is BASF is in a unique position to have multiple modes of actions. 
But the selective herbicides are um, designed to exploit the difference between the target weed and then uh, the desired plant. We target uh, the weeds um, so that grower can effectively apply whatever fits into their um, program. The formulation is important because the use pattern depends on the type of formulation that we're bringing into the market. A lot of research goes into that area just to control the release, absorption, translocation within the plant, and also like estimating the you know how quickly the after you apply the chemistry is degrading. This requires a lot of research, and that's where you know my team comes into play. The application timing is also important, right? So the growers need to know exactly the selective herbicide, especially. They require precise timing during uh, the application. And, you know, plants vary in terms of their, dis- uh, in their response. And there's genetics that play a big role. You know, one variety responds differently to another variety. That's why we spend intense amount of time testing the product in multiple geographies with multiple genetics before we feel comfortable about, you know, making that recommendation. And also the dose, right? This is so important that we want to make sure that growers understand that what is the optimal dose rate, right? So you can't do excess, you can't do low. It has to be just about the right amount of uh, the product that uh, needs to be applied. And also you have to make sure that the non-targets are not affected. All those factors that need to be considered for effective use of herbicide goes into um, the package that we deliver and testing the product in real world situations. A lot of research goes in the lab and a, a lot more research in the field. Um, you know, just looking at, you know, um, is it really working in all different environments? Um, is there anything that we need to adjust, you know, depending on uh, the target species, uh, just to minimize, is there any collateral damage, you know, that through, through the application? And also like, you know, it's not like we're on our own, right? There is EPA, there is PMRA. Um, they have strict guidelines for uh, testing new chemistries and also registering products. And we're only bringing the product that is best performing, safe for the environment, and, you know, bring success to us and to the grower. Padma's team, plus other teams like hers around the BSF world, are striving to provide some real tools to help farmers combat the weed threats. But one thing that Guy Smith, fighting blackgrass in the heavy soils of East Anglia in the UK, said, made me think back to the previous episode, where we heard about a unique method of weed control. Here's Guy, followed by Eric, singing Eric, and his agamo. If you want a rye observation from a farmer, we have these things called bread geese that arrive from Russia every autumn. Um, and the little beggars, they manage to uh, eat the wheat uh, and leave the black grass. Um, if only we could have a species of bird that would eat black grass and leave the wheat. Oh, happy days. Uh, but farming never was that easy. We spoke to Eric Andrus for an episode we made about rice. He shepherds his well-trained ducks around the farm and sings to them. Here's how they help him. So we have uh, figured out how to manage weeds using a type of 
integrated multi-species farming that is known in Japan as aigamo, or duck rice farming. Ducks, simply by being ducks, will forage for food around the rice plants, but they won't harm the rice plants themselves because rice leaves contain silica, which ducks uh, don't like the feel of in their mouths. So they'll work around the rice plants, avoiding them and not trampling them particularly. And uh, they'll suppress the weeds and also eliminate uh, various rice paddy pests like snails and leafhoppers. Um, we're relatively light on pests in uh, northeastern USA because we don't have a lot of rice being grown here. And uh, they also stir up the water around the rice plants and they stimulate the plants to put out more roots, which stimulates them to take up more nutrients, grow bigger and bushier than they otherwise would. Um, this is all really fascinating interaction of plants and animals in a man-made environment that simulates things that the natural environment would do. It's a shame that ducks cannot solve other problems that farmers constantly face, such as climate volatility. I asked Padma how she is planning to help farmers of the future. The reason why we exist in the business is to feed people. We know now that 30 years from now, we have to feed 10 billion people. That is the goal, in spite of all the challenges that we're having, that means our productivity has to go up by 50%. Based on that, every activity that we do and deliver, you know, that's the target. How do we improve productivity by 50%, right, in everything that's the, uh, we do? Does that mean my job is going to change? I don't think so. But, but how we innovate and how we develop products and how we collaborate across the boundaries um, because, as I said at the beginning, the technology is advancing so fast that we can't do this all by ourselves. Going forward, the focus is going to be on delivering the crop system, you know, comprehensive solutions end-to-end, -end, you know, starting from seed, the selection of the seed, um, all the way to harvest, and um, how best can we uh, position the products that we already have for the sustainability goals that we have and also the new innovations that we bring in have to also be focusing um, in, in those aspects. Is it fit you know for what we need to deliver in the future considering all the challenges that are you know that we are facing in the from regulatory perspective, climate change perspective. So how we test um, in, the, in the rigor that we apply in testing our products for future, future environmental conditions um, is going to be different. And also, you know, in our innovation, we have to include AI and uh, Internet of Things to really enable the data-driven decisions. You know, the innovation is going to go faster, but we have to apply those technologies in a meaningful way. Ultimately, the aim is only one, that is to help the grower. So we're focused in North America on three main crop systems, soy crop system, wheat canola uh, in Canada, and fruits and vegetables. Um, the technologies like AI and Internet of Things should simplify the grower practices. So we need to get to a stage where a grower can have these technologies in their hand, on their phone, and everything connected. So they can have BASF software and somebody else's software going into different things. 
So that's that's our aim. So precision application is another one that that the, that falls under that category of how how are we using that AI to detect weeds and uh, you know precisely apply the chemistries so that we save on you know some of the natural resources and also you know conserve um, you know the chemistry as well. A mix of solutions is essential for tackling those plants that are hampering farmers from growing their crops. And whilst Tom Radford would have us eat some more of those plants, not all of them are edible. So from herbicides to ducks, the farmer's arsenal is ever-changing to keep up with the changes in the climate. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie, brought to you by BASF. It would seem odd not to end on a seasonal note, and so one weed that will be putting in an appearance at many festive events in the coming weeks is mistletoe. So whilst you're puckering up to kiss someone beneath the mistletoe, remember that it's a parasite and a weed. Happy Christmas. <laughs>